Miss Vera Hope Walston is abandoning America. She's leaving for Africa to land on Ghana's west coast. This American land, nurtured by her own blood, sweat, and tears, and generations of her families too, is now a lost cause. Back in the 1960s, you could catch her protesting in the streets, hanging with black revolutionary Stokely Carmichael, or getting harassed by the FBI. Once upon a time, she was fighting for black freedom in America, but today she's leaving, and I'm getting ahead of the story. Hey y'all, this is a brand new podcast experience for your listening, enjoyment, and black education. Each episode, the team here is bringing you powerful stories, past and present, of black people fighting the power and plotting their own destinies. Kick back and listen. I'm your host, Professor D. Boos, and this is The Self-Determined. Welcome, welcome to The Self-Determined, a documentary podcast chronicling extraordinary Black life stories from the civil rights and Black power movements all the way to Black Lives Matter. So in just a moment, I'll introduce you to Miss Vera Hope Walston, a headstrong, smart, beautiful Black woman from Washington, D.C., who in 1967 transformed from a civil rights protester to a full-blown Black power revolutionary. What makes a decades-long freedom fighter, a committed civil rights-turned-black power activist, expatriate to Africa permanently? Well, the answer is an all-too-American story about race, racism, and one woman's self-determination to be free. I'm your host, Professor D. Boos, and this is me and Miss Vera Hope Walston speaking by phone in January of 2021. What's your view of the United States? You've lived here all your life. What's your view of it? The United States is is a Jedi mind trick. They have managed this this laughable notion of the of these um, founding fathers who uh, ascribe themselves as human. And, and didn't ascribe any humanity to my people. Therefore, they justified our, our captivity and our brutality and, and their cavalier attitude to, towards our lives and, and that of our future. They were determined to keep us in the dark. They were determined never to give us any hope. They were, were determined that we'd be in subjugation for for perpetuity and forever. Even under their champions, Thomas Jefferson and Lincoln, uh, they were all supremacists. Um, I think nothing of the United States of America. I detest the United States of America. Please America be damned. Um, United States be damned. Uh, uh, they, uh, they have convinced the world that they're the high bastion of democracy and uh, uh, all they are 
bastion of capitalism. They don't give a damn about their people. You know, be, be their poor, poor uh, indigenous, poor, poor black, poor white, poor Spanish speaking. They, they don't give a damn about about anything other than uh, um, uh, that 1%. So I have contempt. I have contempt for, for them. And I feel so sorry for those uh, who flock here from 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 Africa thinking this is the promised land only to get here to see that it's just smoke and mirrors. So how do we understand Miss Vera's passionate denunciations? Well, to do that, we have to go back to her family and childhood in 1950s Washington, D.C. Yes, this is the market we're talking about, the new Negro family. Their name is Wells or Wilson, Smith or Brown or Alexander or Breen. They live in Chicago, in Atlanta or New York, in Detroit, St. Louis, Los Angeles, any one of a thousand cities and towns. All over the country, families such as this are enjoying new prosperity. They have new interests, new standards of living, a buying power they've never enjoyed before. What makes my my family situation a little different is the fact that both of my grandfathers worked on the railroad until they died, and that's not significant today. But but in the twenties, thirties, and forties, that meant they had a good job even during the depression. They weren't out of work during the depression, so so my parents didn't suffer. During the depression, they had food, they had a house. Not only that, since they worked on the railroad, that meant that my grandmothers and uh, their children could ride on the Southern Railroad for free. Keep in mind now, they couldn't, if they got off the train, they had to know somebody in the town they with because there weren't any hotels. And I, I just loved seeing hearing the stories of them traveling in the 20s to New Jersey and to to, to Washington, D.C. So that meant my parents traveled as children. Another thing that, that that's striking, both of my grandmothers were literate. Not only literate, my mother's mother went to college. She did graduate, but she went to college. You know, so so here we are with, with uh, my both of my parents had fathers with the same first name. Both of them were Johns. Uh, John, John McElwain and John Hope, who worked on the railroad. And uh, my grandmothers were both widowed. One was widowed in 1946, in two years before I was born, and one was widowed in, uh, in 1949, a year after I was born. But uh, they they both received widows' pensions from from the railroad, so they weren't destitute, you know. Even when they became a widow, so they were a little bit different from the average uh, black family. Though Miss Vera was born into a black family of means and comfort, some of her earliest memories are of savage cruelty perpetrated by her white neighbors and teachers it would profoundly shape her life and the activism she would take on. 
Let me go back to uh, uh, the Supreme Court decision in 1954. I started school uh, uh, September 1954, so that decision impacted me and all of my friends who were born in 1948. Uh, uh, as, as it was... Uh, 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 you know, we were baby boomers, which meant uh, those of us born right after the war, there was a huge number of, of us. And uh, uh, I remember my parents and my aunt and uncle taking me to school to get me registered. And I mean, they were, I mean, my dad had on a suit, my uncle had on a suit and, and their hats and my mother with her pearls and her gloves and my aunt. I'm telling you, four grown people registered me to for school. And uh, they gave my 14-year-old cousin who was going to Sousa Junior High at the time, the responsibility of taking me to school then going on to school. A little did they know he never did take me to school. He would take me to the end of the block, leave me, and go on about his business, which meant as a five-year-old, I had to run the gauntlet of two blocks of white women standing on their porches yelling at me every every morning, calling me all kinds of names and everything. I'm a little five-year-old trying my best to keep my eyes straight ahead and walk to school and, and return by myself in the evening. Miss Vera minces no words speaking of her childhood trauma. She confesses to its pains and its enduring influence on her life. Never to be the same again. At the first sign of the first family entering, the street responds with the old questions. Why do they go where they're not wanted? Why in a neighborhood like this? Now the old cries, running the place down and values down, wanting our girls. Now images rise up. Riots at night, murder, rape. Images of violation. Fears that lie deep. Both neighbors, when we moved in, both neighbors moved out on both sides of our house were occupied by white people. They moved out when we moved in. Uh, two houses, two houses to the left of our house uh, was a, a family just like ours, uh, a mother and father and two, and two daughters. If my sister and I were in our front yard and the little white girls came out and saw us, they went to their backyard. If we were in the backyard and they came out and saw us, they went to the front yard. And that's how it went. So from 1955 until 19, by 1960, in five years, the whole neighborhood turned around. So we went from uh, being the only brown-skinned people in the neighborhood to being, you know, to the neighborhood being black. Racism and segregation indelibly marked Miss Vera's early years. But Washington was increasingly becoming a new city and black activism was on the rise. Young Vera took notes from her mother, watching the many ways the self-determined can take a stand.
my mother was a firebrand and and uh, she was very outspoken and uh, 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 quick to quick to anger. And uh, at that time, you know, there were all kinds of, of white microaggressions uh, in everyday life that most black folks just brushed off but not my mother. It, it got to the point that I really didn't want to go shopping. Every Saturday, we were going downtown to buy some shoes or some clothes or something. And uh, so this particular Saturday, when I started noticing what was going on, is that when we were walking to a store, the white saleswoman would say, can I help you girls? And my mother would be, uh, she would just be, so outraged and she would say these are my girls and I'm their mother I am not a girl I'm a grown woman and I was wondering you know I'm a little child I'm thinking mom she didn't mean things that you know I'm a little child I don't know any better she's telling me to hush up you know you don't know what you're talking about I know what she meant she calls herself disrespect me and nobody's disrespecting me so of course we will leave that store going to another walking up to the next door and very beautiful white woman said, can I help you? And I'm like, oh God, here we go again. And it would go on and on and on until we walked into a store and somebody said, may I help you? And just cut it off right there. May I help you? Or may I help you, lady? Or you have a good day or something like that. And those were the stores that she patronized. But my mother would go absolutely bonkers and turn the whole store out Anytime anybody said, may I help you girls, knowing full well that they weren't talking to no little little children like my sister and I, who was six and eight, they talked to my mother and called her a girl. And that's what, how white women disrespected black women in those days. Uh, my mama wasn't having it, never had it, never put up with it. And I'm telling you the truth, she traumatized quite a few white women downtown in this, in this city that I do know. And that brings us to the end of the episode. As you can already tell, Miss Vera is no ordinary woman and there is much more to tell. In part two, Miss Vera will share with us how she got involved in civil rights activism as a child and how a remarkable encounter with H. Rep. Brown would lean her into the Black Power movement and change the course of her life. you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to subscribe and share with a friend also if you are touched by miss vera and would like to donate to her expatriation to ghana the link will be provided in the streaming platform The Self-Determined is a podcast conceived, developed, and produced by me, Professor D. Boos. Today's episode is based on interviews between Miss Danielle Boos and Miss Vera Hope Walston. Music is provided by Epidemic Sound. The theme song is Tender by 91 Nova, Dama Beats, and Cushy. All other tracks featured in order of appearance are as follows. Blixum Beat by Descant. Struggle in Paradise by Rollercoaster. Post-Traumatic Love Disorder by Rain Jewels, Demure by Ever So Blue, How the Rain Hits by Miles Avida, 
all the freedom you need by Taryn Ector. For full credits, check your streaming platform website. Thank you so much and remember to be among the self-determined.